0: the story was scandalous. But at first, it didn't sound like something Leslie and Rojas would normally cover. In early 2012, an elementary school teacher in Los Angeles was arrested and charged with 23 counts of loot acts with a minor.
1: They are acts that can only be described as revolting and unthinkable. Tonight, a teacher is behind bars for allegedly doing things to children that most people can't even imagine.
0: At the time, Leslie was an immigration reporter for L.A. public radio station KPCC. Child abuse stories weren't usually something she covered. But Leslie noticed the school was in a mostly Latino neighborhood. And as she dug deeper into the news reports, it just seemed like something was off about the whole thing. I
2: just remember when, for whatever reason, it dawned on me that there were people who were
0: afraid to come forward. People who were afraid to come forward because of their immigration status
2: the LA County Sheriff's Department was trying to convince me to want the families to talk, that those who stepped forward to report the suspected abuse of their kids wouldn't be questioned about their status. But this was 2012, right? It was right in the thick of record deportations and it was hard to convince people.
0: She pursued the story. It was about immigration after all. So Leslie started looking for sources, specifically for people whose children had been abused by the teacher, but who were afraid to talk to the police. And one of the first people she came across was a man named Raimundo. In his interview, Raimundo told her he was undocumented. He had moved to the U.S. from Mexico six years earlier. And he talked about
2: being fearful of speaking to authorities because he didn't have legal status in the U.S. And he also talked about knowing other families whose children had been victimized but who didn't come forward because they were afraid that if they did, they could be deported.
0: Raimundo only found out his 10-year-old daughter was allegedly one of the kids who was abused after the men had already been arrested. Raimundo didn't feel comfortable going to the police, so he decided to go to his daughter's school instead. Raimundo told me back then that he'd gone to the school to try and speak with the
2: principal, but that he'd been told the principal was busy and that he had to talk to a sheriff's official. He said, I didn't want to. I thought they were going to ask me for identification. So he left.
0: Not trusting the police? That's nothing new for immigrants. But in 2012, Raimundo had even more reasons than usual to be afraid. DHS was on its way to breaking the record for most deportations in a year, and not for the first time under Obama or the last. In a program called Secure Communities, ESCOM for short, was largely to blame. By connecting local and federal databases, ESCOM effectively made local law enforcement an extension of ICE. It meant that any time an individual is arrested and booked into a local jail, for any reason, their fingerprints are electronically run through ICE's immigration database. And then they could be detained. This effectively expanded the ability of ICE to reach deep into communities. The Secure Communities Program had basically turned local law enforcement into immigration officers.
2: Secure Communities just added to what was already An existing situation, right? I mean, you know, immigrant communities in particular, you know, undocumented immigrants, families of mixed status, they are frequently targeted and victimized because who are they going to tell? So this fear that was created during this time that so many people were being deported just kept people underground.
0: The local sheriff in LA tried to reassure people so they would come forward. The sheriff's office put out word that victims and their families would no longer be asked about their immigration status. But Leslie remembers Raimundo's reaction when she brought it up. He told me this, that is what they say. But it's one thing that they say
2: and another that they do. I don't trust them. If I had a ferocious pit bull at home and I told you to come in, it won't bite, what would you do?
0: This is Homeland Insecurity a podcast about how immigrants became the enemy. I'm your host, Eddie Andiola. In the last episode, we talked about how President Bush expanded immigration detention in an effort to pass immigration reform. But at the end of his eight years in office, Bush didn't have much to show for his efforts. Not only had he failed to pass reforms, his administration made the crucial mistake of thinking immigration enforcement would improve national security. Fear of another terrorist attack led to the creation of DHS, the rapid expansion of CBP, and the rise of private detention, all under Bush's watch. By 2008, a lot of Americans were ready for something new. And they thought they found it in Barack Obama. You probably remember his campaign slogan. That chant its a direct echo of Si Se Puede, a mantra which farm workers, many of whom were migrants, used in the 1970s. Now, to be fully upfront, I was never one of those people who really loved Obama. During the 2008 election, I was a senior in college. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I was too busy to pay much attention to politics. But for people who were paying attention, he seemed like he was going to be really good on immigration. You know, he was supposed to bring hope and change and all that. I believe we can keep
1: the promise of our founding. The idea that if you're willing to work hard, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you look like.
0: Around the same time that Obama was elected, I started getting involved in immigration advocacy. A couple of years earlier, Arizona had passed a law that denied institution and financial aid to undocumented students like me. As a result, in 2009, I lost all the scholarships I had worked so hard for. I almost had to drop out of school. It made me realize how vulnerable I was, and so many others too. It was one of the most stressful periods of my life. But it was also a pivotal moment that introduced me to the undocumented youth movement. To other young people in the same situation people who are tired of living in the shadows. That's when I became an activist. I started meeting a lot of other undocumented students who were also fed up. Most of us had lived in the U.S. since we were kids, but as far as the government was concerned, we would never be Americans. I hoped that Obama would change things. He seemed like a reasonable guy, smart too, and a Democrat. That meant he had to change things in favor of the powerless, right? And eventually, some things did change in the right direction. But it took a lot of pressure from us, from the undocumented youth movement. In 2012, Obama signed into law a program that would help people who came to the U.S. as children, like I did. The program was called DACA. That stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. I'm a DACA recipient. It doesn't mean I have legal status like someone with a green card, It just means that for a while, the government promises not to deport me. DACA recipients are relatively a small group, 700,000 people out of between 10 and 12 million undocumented immigrants. You have to check a lot of boxes to qualify for DACA. I qualified, and so did my little brother, but some of my siblings were too old to apply, so they are still undocumented. That means no driver's license, no work permit, and a lot more fear that they could be deported. But DACA is in danger. It's currently before the Supreme Court, and that case could be decided any day now. By the time this podcast comes out, it's very possible that the court will either end the program or make it very vulnerable, which means I could easily be undocumented again. Everything is uncertain. But even if I lose it, DACA has been a crucial part of my life. It's made it possible for me and my brother to help support the rest of our family and give back to our community. But it's just about the only good thing Obama did for immigrants while he was in office. A lot of his policies were pretty awful. Policies like ESCOM. It's one of the reasons some people call him deporter-in-chief.
3: You know, when we talk about what is the driver or what is the cause of the numbers of people who are, are deported from the United States every year, hands down Secure Communities wins that contest. This is Jenny Pascarella. I'm Director of Immigrant Rights for the ACLU of California. She's also an expert on ESCOM. It is a dragnet that has swept
0: up so many people. So what exactly is SCOM? The simplest way of putting it is that it basically turns local law enforcement into an extension of ICE. The Bush administration actually created ESCOM during its final months in office. But President Obama expanded it into the biggest deportation program in the country's history. Here's how it works. ESCOM requires that any time someone is arrested, the police checks with ICE to see if that person has any immigration violations. The whole system relies on electronic fingerprint databases.
3: It basically created this electronicized way of arresting people.
0: When local police arrest someone, they send their fingerprints to ICE, to a giant database. And the database says that the person is undocumented or has overstayed their visa. Then ICE sends back a notice to detain them.
3: So no officer has to go into the jail, ask a person questions. They don't have to physically go to the jail and put a person in handcuffs. Everything about it facilitates just this automation of arrests across the country.
0: The idea was to make it easier for immigration officials to identify immigrants who might pose a threat to public safety. One of the people who pushed the program inside of the Obama administration was Janet Napolitano. She was Obama's first DHS secretary. And before that, she was the governor of Arizona. As governor, she was one of the earliest adopters of ESCOM. The way she talked about it, ESCOM was a totally common-sense approach to making everybody safer. Here she is, speaking at a meeting of the Council on Foreign Relations in 2009.
4: And it's a very effective way, as a force multiplier, to really make sure uh, that that those types of immigrants that have already broken our criminal laws — and these are criminal laws in addition to immigration laws — go into the removal process.
0: In other words, ESCOM was only going to catch the bad immigrants, the criminals. That was a crux of Obama's message. Some immigrants were good, others were bad. Obama wanted to pass immigration reform, reforms to help out the good immigrants. But to get Republicans on board, he needed to show that he could be tough on immigration too, on the so-called bad immigrants. And ESCOM was an easy way to do that
1: we're focusing our limited resources and people on violent offenders and people convicted of crimes. Not just families, not just folks who are looking to scrape together an income. And as a result, we've increased the removal of criminals by 70%.
0: Who would object to deporting criminals? Except that's not how it worked out at all.
5: My name is Sarah Valdez. I'm the co-director of the children's program at RAICES. Everyone's seen the images of the kids at the border after they've been separated from their parents and then thrown in a cold cement cell. Those are our kids. Those are the kids that the RAICES children's program represents. After everything they've been through, they have to go through an immigration court process and we help advocate for them, fight for them, defend them so that they can stay here in this country legally and be safe. I have clients that are very young. One of my youngest clients right now is seven. And when I go into court with her, it's me and a seven-year-old. Her feet don't touch the floor. We really feel like we're a part of these kids' lives, and we take pride in their accomplishments. And we get excited for them when something good happens in their case. We get excited for them when they tell us good news, like they did really well on their math test, or when they talk about their favorite teacher at school. Our work depends on you. Donate at Homelandandsecuritypodcast.com dot
0: Jenny Buscarella, the ACLU lawyer, started seeing problems with Escom really early on. The program. It wasn't so much a magnet for immigrants with criminal records. Rather, it was a net for all immigrants. As a result, it wasn't just criminals who were getting caught. Sometimes, the immigrants who were detained were actually victims of crimes. Pasquarella remembers one case where an undocumented woman called the police on her abusive boyfriend. The police arrested her instead and
3: sent her fingerprints to ICE. She then got caught up in the system. And so that, for me, was an important case in really beginning to open up the conversation about, look, they say that this program is just to to catch people who have serious convictions. But they're going after people who are victims of crimes, who have not even been charged with the crime, let alone been convicted of one.
0: I've seen this happen so many times. People who come forward and file a complaint about being abused being attacked, and then somehow instead of justice, they get handcuffs, a cell, an immigration judge. They end up in the system. In the first two years of ESCOM, the government deported almost 64,000 people through the program. And to call them criminals is a big stretch. Just under 40% had a misdemeanor at worst. Some were picked up for small infractions, like loitering or getting a speeding ticket. And just over 25% were never convicted of any crime. These weren't the bad immigrants that Obama promised. They were just regular people.
3: Everyone is subject
0: to the possibility
3: that you could get that knock on the door or you, you know, end up in police custody for whatever reason and can get swept up into a system where you don't belong. And all because there's not the sufficient checks to ensure that this agency is not, is not abusing people's rights, is not going outside the bounds of what is permitted in our constitutional system.
0: The lack of checks has caused a lot of damage to a lot of families, including mine. In 2010, as ESCOM was really ramping up, Arizona's legislature passed a law called SB 1070. And we begin with the most controversial section of our state's immigration law, the show-me-your-papers provision. It is about to go into effect. This after a federal judge says police can ask for proof of citizenship from people they think are here illegally. The law made it so that the police officers could ask anyone they suspected of being undocumented to prove their immigration status. The cops didn't even have to arrest you first. Practically, that meant not only were immigrants being stopped regularly to show their papers, but anyone who looked vaguely like they could be from another country. Anyone Latinx, basically. They also stopped a lot of Native American people. If your skin was brown, you were a suspect, more or less. It was Arizona's way of extending ESCOM beyond people who were actually taken into custody. SB 1070 allowed officers to do an immigration check on anyone they wanted. One night... A few weeks after the law went into effect, I was at home getting ready for bed when I got a text from my brother. It said that my mom had been pulled over near our house. My brother asked me what to do. By then, I was already pretty deep into immigration activism. I had helped lead the fight for DACA, and I was very well known in Arizona as a leader in the Dreamer movement. I knew that my mom was in a really dangerous situation. So I told my brother not to say anything, and I got in my car and went there as fast as I could. As soon as I got there, I started recording on my phone. I was worried that my mom's rights would be violated by the cop. I had already heard so many stories like that. The officer told me that my mom had been going 10 miles over the speed limit, but my mom didn't buy it. It's a little hard to hear. But my mom told me that the officer pulled her over because she's Latina. And I believe her. She's a super careful driver. She knows that getting pulled over can lead to being deported. But the officer was demanding to see her papers. This was what SB 1070 was all about. My mom didn't have her ID on her, so I offered to go home and get it. So you know what? Before all the games, the
3: address, and the right to remain silent, and all that crap, maybe. But now, no.
0: The officer said they were being nice by not arresting my mom for not carrying her ID. But they were still going to take her in to be photographed and fingerprinted. My mom kept asking me, can they do that? Honestly, I didn't really know. But in the moment, it didn't seem like we had a lot of options. So they took her in. And I followed the police car to the jail. They wouldn't let me inside the building, so I waited in my car. While I waited, the police fingerprinted her And then, thanks to ESCOM, they sent those fingerprints to ICE. A few hours later, they released her. I'm not sure why they didn't take my mom away that night. The officer who brought her out told me, we know that she's here illegally and know what happened in 1998. He was talking about the first time we entered the U.S. without papers and were deported the same day. In a lot of cases, that would have been enough for the police to hold someone for ICE. But I didn't ask too many questions. At the time, I was just happy my mom was coming home. She wasn't going to be labeled a criminal or deported under ESCOM. Or at least, that's what I thought. A few months passed. Then on a Thursday evening in January of 2013, my family was getting ready to go for dinner. I was sitting in the living room when the doorbell rang. I looked through the little window in the door and saw what I thought were police officers. But when my mom opened the door, I realized they weren't police. They were ICE agents. At least six, maybe more. Everything happened really fast. They took my mom and my older brother into custody. My little brother and I had DACA, so they left us behind. A few months earlier, when they had pulled my mom over, the police sent her fingerprints through the ESCOM database to ICE. So that day in January... Without any warning, they finally came for her. They came for my mom, the woman who raised me, who sacrificed so much of her life to give all her children what she never had. My best friend. My inspiration to keep fighting no matter how tired I was. I felt totally helpless. Had no idea where to turn except the internet. So I made a video and posted it on YouTube. Here's a clip from it. They just took it, but they didn't want to tell me why. They just said that they needed to go because they were here illegally <laughs> and that it shouldn't be here. <laughs> and this needs to stop. <laughs> we cannot let this happen anymore. And I need, I need everybody to, to stop. <laughs> to stop pretending like nothing is wrong. To stop pretending that we're just living normal lives
4: because we're not. This can happen to any of us, anytime.
0: I knew that appealing to the public had worked in the past with deportation cases of undocumented youth. So I decided to post it with the help of my friends. That video and the online organizing we did in less than 12 hours ended up saving my mom. By 4 a.m. that night, she was already on a bus being deported back to Mexico. Then, as my mom remembers it, the bus driver got a phone call. And as soon as he hung up, he turned the bus around back towards Phoenix. My mom was back home with us later that morning. It turned out the video had gone viral. Thousands of petitions were signed, thousands of calls were made to ICE, and the media coverage was growing. I don't know for sure, but I imagine that ICE didn't want to deal with the bad press of deporting someone whose daughter was a high-profile immigration activist who worked in Congress. The story had gotten enough attention that a few weeks later, Secretary Napolitano was asked about it in a news interview.
1: Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano commenting for the first time about the case. 12 News has confirmed Andiola's mother Maria was considered a priority case by ICE. She had been deported in 1998 and had a traffic stop last year.
0: A priority case? Napolitano had made it sound like my mom had committed a serious crime or something.
4: But I can't tell you what actually was in the file. And uh, oftentimes, what is in the press doesn't include everything that's in the file.
0: It turned out my mom had a standing deportation order since 1998. It's from the first time we tried to cross into the U.S., when we were caught and sent back to Mexico. That's what made her a high priority. That was it. The traffic stopped 14 years later, put my mom back on ISIS radar. But clearly... She wasn't that much of a national security threat, since a little negative media coverage was enough for DHS to let her go. The Obama administration always said ESCOM was only supposed to target people with serious criminal records. But my mom was almost deported because of it, all from a single minor traffic stop. My mom was already pretty afraid of law enforcement. But now she says that even if she were in a dangerous situation, she would never, ever call the police. Ever. Which is how a lot of immigrants started to feel during the Obama administration. As word of ESCOM arrest started to get around, a lot of undocumented people started saying that they would rather let terrible crimes go unreported than interact in any way with law enforcement. Which police officers will tell you, only benefits people with serious criminal records. When victims don't report crimes it makes everyone else less safe so much for secure communities
4: my name is luz varela and i am currently a legal assistant at raices children's program my job consists of helping the children who arrive to the border and they get detained and they get sent to a shelter i talk to them about their rights what's to come for them in terms of legal and then we do an intake to see if they qualify for a legal relief here in the united states so a visa we deal with a lot of children that come from very rough places a life of violence from poverty from traumas and then they come in a journey that is really dangerous for them and so when they arrive they have no trust for us but once we are able to build that trust with them and that relationship It becomes so fulfilling to us and and very important to them to have someone that they can trust. We want to help people that want a better life. And that's the only thing that we care about. The best way to support this work is to donate to Raices. Visit com.
0: Let's go back to the story of Miramonte Elementary School and the story of Raimundo, whose daughter was allegedly sexually abused by a teacher and who felt too scared to go to the cops. So he went to his daughter's school instead. But the school told Raimundo that he needed to talk to the sheriff. He was out of options, not really knowing what to do next. I'm sick.
3: I had to go to the emergency room. I was in the hospital twice. Anxiety,
5: worry, I can't sleep.
0: Raimundo just didn't believe that the sheriff would keep his word not to report the immigration status of the victims. And he had good reason. LA County Sheriff Lee Baca had been a vocal supporter of ESCOM. He had publicly defended the policy on more than one occasion.
1: But when it comes to the secure communities, it makes the message to the general public at large is that if you're an illegal immigrant and you commit a crime, you will be deported.
0: Baca's own mother was an undocumented Mexican immigrant who eventually got her citizenship. But he still thought that ESCOM was a good way to stop crime.
1: Five or six years ago, the county jail in L.A. was 25% illegal immigrants. Now it's about 16 I think the immigrant community that's here illegally are doing a much better job in making sure that they don't violate any laws.
0: But that's not really the case. In fact, several studies have found that ESCOM had zero effect on reducing crime. But it definitely impacts people's willingness to report crimes. As much as Raimundo wanted justice for his daughter, he also didn't want to be deported. Here's Leslie Barstein rojas again.
2: So like several other parents, he sidestepped law enforcement and went directly to a lawyer to file a personal injury lawsuit against the school, which he felt was safer.
0: Those lawyers arranged a press conference for Raimundo to tell his story and to encourage other undocumented families to seek out representation. Raimundo hid his face from the cameras. He didn't want to be recognized. He's saying, we have a gray lawyer. Raise your voices. We are not alone. Ramundo's lawyer, Jessica Dominguez, demanded fairness from the sheriff's department. She asked him to give the families a chance to earn U visas, which protect immigrants from deportation who are victims or witnesses of a crime. Specifically, She wanted them to assign an officer familiar with the process, who could give the families accurate information, someone they could trust to help them come forward without ending up in detention. You have to understand, these people wake up every day to the news where they find out from a neighbor, from a cousin, someone who was driving without a license, someone who was selling ice cream, someone who was selling something out on the street. And they end up being detained by ICE because that's what secure communities Applies. So if these families have, for example, some of our families have been victims of other crimes in the past. They never reported them. They never reported them because they're afraid of being detained by ICE. Shortly after the press conference, Raimundo did end up going to the sheriff to report the abuse his daughter experienced. It was a risk, but he felt like he had to do it. Ultimately, the teacher was charged with abusing 23 students. But further investigation revealed that he abused many more children during his more than 30 years at Miramonte. He eventually pleaded no
2: contest to the charges, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. In the end, the district paid out roughly $140 million in settlements to more than 70 victims.
0: And we don't know how many more may have stayed in the shadows. What happened in Miramonte was an extreme case. But other cases of victims not wanting to come forward were playing out across the country. And local law enforcement started to realize the difficult position they were in because of ESCOM. In order to keep communities safe, they needed people to report crimes.
2: And they were worried that if they were seen as immigration enforcers,
0: the people wouldn't do that. Some law enforcement agencies tried to opt out of ESCOM. Early on, the Obama administration had told state and local governments that it was their decision whether to participate. But opting out wasn't ultimately an option. So they got creative. They said, okay, federal government, you can make us give you this data, but you can't make us whole people for you. They call themselves sanctuary cities. The name was borrowed from old policies that had protected immigrants from arrest in the 1980s. You know, when you talk
2: about so-called sanctuary policies that cities have, that some law enforcement agencies have, like the LAPD, I mean, this is really the general thinking, right, is to encourage some kind of trust, because otherwise you're going to have a community where crimes are going to happen, and no one's going to come forward. There aren't going to be any witnesses. People are going to be victimized. They're not going to do anything about it. And... That's what was going on back then when people just felt too
0: afraid to come forward and talk about the abuse of their own children. In today's sanctuary cities and states, local law enforcement still share fingerprints and other information with the FBI, which is then automatically sent to DHS. But anyone who has not committed a serious crime is released after they posted bail or completed their sentence. To a lot of people, the idea of a sanctuary city is really dramatic. But they are basically doing what DHS promised ESCOM would do in the first place. They only hold people who might pose a threat to the community. Not everyone who comes into contact with the police has committed a serious crime. There was this narrative
2: of good immigrants versus bad immigrants, and that the administration would focus on deporting the supposedly bad ones. And of course, it's not nearly as black and white as this, right? There were a lot of
0: people caught up in the gray area. People like my mom. She was treated like a bad immigrant, a threat to society. But why? Because she had been caught 14 years earlier trying to cross the border to escape her violent husband? Or because of a minor traffic stop? Attorney Jenny Pascarella said ESCO makes it easy to essentially brand any immigrant as a criminal.
3: I think that this is ultimately a racist narrative that has fueled a lot of the um, very severe anti-immigrant policy initiatives that that we've seen under the Trump administration. But really, the Obama administration sadly laid the groundwork for that.
0: Just like Bush before him, Obama expanded harsh immigration policies with a hope of passing bipartisan immigration reform. And just like Bush, he failed. Instead, He allowed the detention and deportation machine to grow vastly more powerful than he had ever been before he was elected. By the end of 2014, Obama had deported more than 2.2 million people, more than any president in history. And most of those deportations happened because of ESCOM. So the numbers are pretty clear. Obama was bad for immigrants. But he didn't want to look bad. And as criticisms and lawsuits against ESCOM piled up, the administration announced a change of strategy. In 2014, they disbanded ESCOM and established an alternative, the Priority Enforcement Program. They spun it as a brand new approach, focused on catching the bad guys.
1: Felons, not families. Criminals, not children. Gang members. Not a mom who's working hard to provide for her kids. We'll prioritize, just like law enforcement does every day.
0: But Pascarilla says he wasn't really the end of ESCOM. You
3: know, I think there were certain things that they changed for the better, but it by no means was an abandonment of secure communities. And it was, again, this, let's tell the public we're going to do one thing, but then let's actually do a different thing. And hopefully they won't find out about it.
0: Something else happened that same year. Something that almost promise and showed how false it really was.
1: Unaccompanied children crossing the Mexican border isn't new. What's different now, though, is that the numbers have dramatically increased, and almost all of them are coming not from Mexico, but from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador.
0: Obama promised to prioritize felons and criminals, not families, not kids. Instead, his administration was locking up thousands of mothers and their children in detention centers along the southern border.
1: Well we intend to do the right thing by these children. Their parents need to know that this is an incredibly dangerous situation and it is unlikely that their children will be able to stay.
0: That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Jonathan Ryan and Brian Carmel for Raices. Special thanks to Stephanie May Joyce. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. The remaining episodes of Homeland Insecurity will be available in July. If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.